Well, hello everybody. Welcome to this uh, episode <clears throat> X. Not quite sure I've lost count. Anyway, the last episode <laughs> of 2016 of the Up Bow Down Low. I am Luke Carbon. I am Kenny Keppel. And um, yeah, this, this is it. The, the 2016, it's over. Yeah, it's done. pretty much. We're done. Yeah. Um, we're extremely excited to have with us in the building this week, um, Maestro Simone Young, who's very kindly given us um, a week of her time to take us through uh, the theme and variations yep. of she various orchestral pieces. She just happened to have a spare week and she said, why don't I come into Anam and Which do I feel thing. doesn't have, happen all that often. So like, no. it's a bit of a windfall for us that she's, that she's yeah, here. D- you know? Definitely. Um, so that's been very, very exciting. And as Luke said, the theme has been theme and variations. <laughs> uh, and sort of uh, over these five weekdays that she's come in and we've had a two and a half hour uh, call uh, rehearsal on a piece. And it's been a different piece for each of these five days. And it's been very, very interesting. We've workshopped it a little bit. And then the second half of the day would be a sort of semi quasi performance yeah quasi public performance uh for various Slash people lecture. we've recorded three very short interviews with simone uh, well two of them are pretty short one of them was not so short yeah <laughs> uh, um but the first one uh we recorded on tuesday and um we had just rehearsed and performed i think as well the rega theme of variations on a theme of mozart right you tell me i wasn't doing that one Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, I, th- I believe that was the piece. Um, so let's have a little listen to that piece now, and then we'll play the interview. Simone Young, welcome back to Anham. Lovely to be back uh, here. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful that you've decided to share this week with us. Um, what do you want to gain out of this week? Or what do you want us to be gaining out of this week, uh, fundamentally? Uh, I guess the, the, the basic goal of this week is for everybody to understand just a little bit more about what it is to be an orchestral musician. Um, hopefully to take away some stylistic elements that you can apply to other repertoire of the same periods, which is why I kind of went to lengths to choose five different works that are stylistically really different. Mm. Um, Hopefully I'm going to ignite something in somebody who says, Mm -hmm. wow, I really want to do that, I really want to have a go at conducting, or somebody who tomorrow when I'm going to talk quite a lot about analysis and tone rows and and the theoretical understanding of work and what that means for a practical musician rather than for a musicologist that I hope I'm going to see lights go on in a few faces and some people get really switched on by that which is great Um, I hope so too that's that's a lesson that can be very easily you know jumped over absolutely because I think the problem with doing musicology and analysis and stuff when you're a student at a conservatory is that it tends to become the class that you go to that you have to do written work for and that you have to pass at the end of the year in order to progress to the next year to do the thing you really love, which is playing your instrument. Mm-hmm. Whereas, in fact, for a performing musician to become intellectually curious about the work you're doing actually makes for a better musician. Yeah. 
And there's always another level. There's, well, personally, what I've found is that there's always like another level of analysis that you can go into, uh, whether it's you know harmonic or even just sort of structural, um, and from that, different ideas that you can bring out because there's so many different possibilities of ways that you can interpret. Absolutely. I often feel that. Um, now I'm putting myself out of a job, but I often feel that you could that as a conductor I could save of five rehearsals I could probably save two if everybody in the orchestra had spent some time looking at how their part refers references to the full work because I reckon eighty five percent of what I do is teach an orchestra how the score functions. What's on the page? What's on the page? Yeah. yeah. And reminding them who they're playing with and yeah. all of it. And that's a lot of that can come from within the orchestra itself. And it's why when you see these orchestras that are under massive financial pressure, like the English orchestras, um, there's there's an, an open study score on the foot of almost every stand. And the questions that are coming often reference different versions of the of the scores. Um, and that's it's really interesting. But it also saves me doing a lot of nitty gritty. That's a sony kettle of fish, though, because you know, I mean, I think we've all been in rehearsals and performances where people have been using different editions, or you know, maybe the score is a different edition to the parts and that kind of stuff, and that can take up so much time in rehearsal. Yeah. And also, there's so much that you can learn from looking at the score and just finding errors <laughs> on your own. Part, like, yeah. Because oh, there's then just you can so become. Many. I'm I'm such a musical nerd. <laughs> I mean, I I have a really really strong nerd streak. Yeah. That and I can get really detailed about you know oh god is that should that be an accent or should it be a decrescendo or what kind of a staccato is that is you know Verdi's handwriting is that a round dot or a straight dot it's you know or even like in the 1950s they did it this way and nowadays it's sort of like exactly it's um I spent sorry it's It's never ending yeah it's It's never ending ending and it's fascinating and I just want to see people interested in it Mm. because then you get you get payback and feedback, and I think you get more informed performances. You know, um, Howard Penny, uh, uh, the um, he's head of strings, isn't he? He is, right? Howard, Howard's yeah. a cellist. Yeah, yeah, he's head of yeah. strings, yes. Um, a cello faculty here. He talked once about um, recomposition with us, this idea of like um, related to improvisation, but being able to move fluidly amongst the score and sort of to make the really hard artistic decisions that I see sometimes. And it mm. reminded me today, um, um, today in that, uh, how do you say it, Rega? Rega. Yeah, Rega. Yeah. Um, there was a misprint in the second oboe part where he was playing mezzo forte where um, it should have been a piano. Yeah. Like that's such an easy one to probably look at and be like, oh, okay, that's a misprint. But then, I mean, that's only the tip of the iceberg of um, all, all the misprints and, and, and things that you, you really have to, you know, it's, it's a minefield, isn't it? It's a complete minefield. I mean, without going into massive details, I, I did a lot of study of the earliest sources I could get my hands on for the ring cycle when I was recording mm. the ring cycle in Hamburg. And one of the things that transformed something for me, do we need to stop for the bells? Or no, it's fine. Okay. No, it's this is part of the ambience. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, there's, the this, there's this moment in the third act of Valkyra where in all the printed versions of the scores, the crescendo goes to the bar line and the decrescendo starts halfway through the next bar. Okay, now... For the violins, who've got a, one bar is about you know ten centimeters long because they've got so many notes to play, the positioning of that crescendo and decrescendo is very clear. But for the woodwind players and horns, who only have a, a semi-brief in the bar to play, where is it? What is it doing? Yeah. And I sat with the with the autograph 
score and it was perfectly clear from the autograph score that actually the crescendo goes over the bar line to the middle of the second bar and then the decrescendo which means the peak of the crescendo is not at the bar line it's mm-hmm. on the three mm-hmm. transformed the phrase transformed mm-hmm. the shape of the phrase completely illuminated a passage that i'd never really understood mm-hmm. and i was kind of blown away by it i think when as i explained <laughs> it to my orchestra i think you know 30 percent of them went big deal (laughs) (laughs) but enough of them got it and the key players got it the horns got it and the timpani got it so that the phrase was shaped right Um, there must be a a eureka moment you know oh absolutely it's one of those things where you can't believe it I found would you believe it a a clarinet chord an A minor clarinet chord completely absent from the from the modern printing of the ring parts in Rheingold just missing altogether Right. just not there it's in the score but it's in a quiet place and one where despite the fact I'd conducted the piece half a dozen times mm-hmm. I'd never noticed it was missing and then I started going back and looking at the parts in Vienna and looking at the parts in Berlin and because in Berlin they were playing with such an old set of parts it was there but in oh, wow. Vienna they had a more modern set of parts and it was missing uh, fascinating really fascinating someone, someone along the line was just like oh yeah nah Somewhere along the line, they missed it in the printing, <laughs> yeah. and it, it didn't go any further. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and, and was that an isolated example, or have you found a bunch of those? Oh, I found I found massive number of errors. I mean, I, my assistants love me and hate me because you know there's there's usually a lot of dust involved. Can you just with like old make scores. a catalogue and like <laughs> get it published? That'd be really you nice. Know, we, we had this conductor in, in Queensland at the conservatory who used to play bass in the Met. Right and, and uh, Michael Morgan, if you yeah, if you sure. know, yeah, um, and he told us a story about they did um, maybe some Gershwin offer us or something, but but they, they went through and made this um, catalogue of all the errors in the score yeah. and all the parts, sent it to the publisher, and they weren't interested at all. They didn't care. No, <laughs> well, I did the same when I was assistant on Lady Macbeth of Mansensk in Cologne in 1988, and made this huge catalogue, 400 misprints wow. from that was just in the full score that were obvious misprints. I found things like E-flat clarinets mistransposed into B-flat and because it was so multitonal anyway, nobody picked it up, <laughs> played parts. A story of our life. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. And so, you know, I, was, I went through all of this and found all of this and they said, oh, well, you must have a very faulty set of parts. We thought, we, we hired it from you. And, of course, it's all about money for the publishers mm. because then the company can reclaim some of the, some of the, the higher fee. And uh, surprise, surprise, about seven years later, they brought out a new critical edition. But it took seven years. <laughs> it took seven years and I'm not credited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was too young and stupid then to, to even think about yeah. copyright and, and charging yeah. them for my services. So. Yeah, sure. That's amazing. Um, one thing that happened today in rehearsal, which I thought was really cool, um, was that you were reminding some of the leaders in the sections how how their role is or what their responsibility is for their section to give them information and to relay various critical elements of like what needs to be done in order for the section to operate um it's kind of hard to pick that up in a in a in a in a sort of conservatory situation like nm um because we just don't have people coming in and going this is how it's done in the you know, in the orchestra, and this is how you talk to other people. Uh, it's all kind of, it can be sort of just trial, tri- trial and error. Yeah. Um, well, it's why I'm enjoying this week's yeah. process because if we were just getting ready for a concert, 
I would probably not um, get people as involved. I'd be just issuing a lot more information and instructions and mm. watching it happen. Yep. But um, that's the whole idea of this process, that it's about learning what I as a conductor expect from a professional orchestra. And that's why we talked about it and it was all part of the planning that the string sections are rotated. There's a different leader of the strings of each section every day. And so they're part of their experience is not just playing the pieces, but learning what their roles are. I mean, it's a little easier amongst the winds because you're either sitting first or second and you swap over and you, it's very clear where the responsibilities are. And Whereas in a section, it's quite difficult to know how much you're entitled to say and how much you should pass on. But um, I guess it's particularly present in my mind at the moment because last week I worked with the MSO and um, Owen was the concert master and was just brilliant and it was the first time we'd worked together and that whole relationship conductor concert master is really important I often think the concert ma- the concert masters kind of like the interface mm. between mm. the conductor and the orchestra mm. and so I love an active concert master who's thinking creatively and so if they, I mean, it was Brooklyn and I, and they had my Boeings from my recording. And so he knows by reading those Boeings and seeing what I'm doing, what I'm after. And then is firing the questions at me, is the, are those up bows traveling along the bow or are they retakes, giving it a different emotional character? And how do you want this? Uh, warm or sinister? <laughs> <laughs> I completely missed that reference earlier, but never mind. No, it was, it was cheeky of me. Yeah, sorry. no, it was very good. I completely missed it, but now, now we're, I know where we are. Um, but exactly, how, how, what kind of colours do you want in this, and what, what is it you're after, and then being able to translate that into technical terms for the string players to be on it. And I don't want to say to a concert master, look, I think we need we need two upbows there, yeah. and then have to repeat the same instruction to every section leader. Once he's got hold of it, he needs to be thinking ahead, oh, well, you know, two bars down, the second violins have got the same material. So, guys, two up bows there. So that's the responsibility from the concert master and within each section to pass the information back. So I guess I'm laying more emphasis on that this week than I normally would, but I think it's a very useful part of the process and I'm, I'm I, glad I you agree. picked up on it. Absolutely, yeah. 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 It's kind of like teaching musical direction in a way, in, 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 in micro ways. You know, like we spend a lot of time doing orchestra here and, you know, a fair bit of chamber music. But to, to, to take um, charge artistically, even of like one small subset of a piece, of a part, is a, is a skill worth learning. Mm. Yeah. Great. Well, we're going to have a few more of these chats during the week, I think. Yeah, perfect. And that's probably a good place to wrap it up. Um, Is there um, any final reflections on today's uh, performance, so to speak? No, I don't think so. I'm pretty happy where we are today. And I felt we were all a bit foggy when the day started. I felt we were all a bit slow getting moving at 10 o'clock this morning. But the interesting thing is, I think everybody... I mean, yesterday we did the hide and everybody was really buzzy. And... Quite honestly, the Haydn is a better piece of music mm. than the Rega. So I felt also that was maybe just an intuitive, instinctive kind of response to the fact that, okay, this is B-grade music. Yesterday we were doing A-grade music. Well, tomorrow we're doing A++++-grade music. I mean, Berg is, Berg's Wozzeck is one of the masterpieces, and I, I can't wait. Neither can we. <laughs> <laughs> um, Simone, thank you so much. We'll, um, we'll see you tomorrow. Excellent. See you tomorrow. See you. Thank you.
All right, so uh, day three, we attempted a uh, Passacaglia excerpt from um, Albenberg's opera Wozzeck. Yes. Um, and that is a set of theme and variations of, of sorts. Some of them are only one bar long. Do you remember that? Yeah, so it was a theme of variations in a different sense because Albenberg was using uh, 12-tone serialism. Very interesting and very intellectual music with a lot of underlying symbolisms and things like that. Um, but yeah, it was just a little excerpt from the first act of Wozzeck, his opera. Um, Wozzeck. Wozzeck? I'm back in front of you. <laughs> anyway Shall we have a little listen to that? We'll have a little listen to uh, the excerpt we did um, from Wozzeck and, uh, um, and then I'll chat with Simone Wozzeck! Das ist schlecht. Okay, so we're halfway through day three of um, this last week at Anna with Simone Young. Uh, welcome back. Hi. <laughs> okay, so Berg, Wozzeck. Why, why is this on the program? Well, it's on the program because it's repertoire that people very rarely get anywhere near and when you do get near it it's usually under pretty stressful conditions where you've got three or four days to get it ready and you're on um, and I thought it would be useful information for that you know just from one scene just in one scene of Berg uh, of the Wozzeck that you can take a lot of that information away with you and apply it across the board to the second Viennese school. So you mentioned that this work has been done in Australia once before, right? It has. In fact, we were just checking, and it was, seems to have been done in the late 90s. Jonathan Summers sang Wozzeck, and Barry Kosky directed it. Um, but, yeah, it was done at a time when I was out of the country, so, yeah. Was there any indication, do you know, of how it went over in, in Australia? Yeah, apparently it went over very well, but it's a limited audience. I mean, it's the sort of piece... It's strange. Berg... Um, Britain, Janacek, they all kind of suffer the same fate in opera repertoire in that everybody who's in them loves it and the audiences, they come in droves for the premiere and they, for the first run, but when you repeat it again, which is what you do with a lot of opera repertoire, you repeat it again, the audience stays away. So um, you can only dose them very gently through the repertoire this kind of repertoire so um but for the musicians what a what a treasure trove really yeah and i was just talking to Anne frankenberg who was orchestral director or orchestral manager in sydney when they did it back in 98 mm. 99 and she was reminding me that in that production the orchestra actually sat on the stage behind the singers and there was a prompter in the front row of the auditorium who was cueing the singers, had a monitor of the conductor. The conductor was behind the stage, behind the singers, with the orchestra, but it meant that you could have the full-sized orchestra. They weren't constrained by the limits of the Sydney pit. Which could is you see the orchestra? From, Sorry? Like, could the audience see the orchestra? And the audience could see the orchestra, yeah. and they created an acoustic shell above the orchestra to make it sound good. So she said the orchestra were really happy playing in that environment, but it was really stressful for the singers and the conductor. Absolutely. That's really full on. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So um, the second Viennese school, the Bergs and Schoenbergs and Webern's, is this like is this a deep love of yours? 
Absolutely. I, I can, in fact, I'll have to be very careful in the presentation this evening that I don't waffle on for too long because <laughs> I can talk for hours about this stuff. Um, I think it's partly because I just love Marler and Richard Strauss as well. And this, that whole Viennese time between 1900 and let's say 1938, um, the stuff that was going on in music, in art, in literature, literature in that part of the world was just incredible. And I've read a lot about it. I've read lots of literature from that period. I've visited all the galleries, seen all the artworks. I've, it's a musical period I've really sort of soaked myself in, mm. up to Korngold and even Franz Schmidt. Now, here's one for you. Have you ever heard of Franz Schmidt? Not Franz. We, we just did we, a, we a, just did a, a, a Leo, Leo Schmidt. Leo Schmidt. No, uh, different one. This different is Franz one. Schmidt, who wrote a piece called The Book with Seven Seals. Das Buch mit sieben Siegeln. Um, I think I saw that in the SeaWorld gift shop last time I was there. <laughs> 19, <laughs> 1938. That's Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T. Yeah, the one we did was S-M-I-T. Yeah. Um, and he's sort of like the end line of the Austrian post-romantics. Um, this book with seven seals is a thing that's at the front of my mind at the moment simply because I recorded it. It was the last thing I recorded mm. in Hamburg before I left and it, if you it's sort of like Messiah um, gone a bit nuts like the, <laughs> the the principal singer is a tenor and it's like the Messiah evangelist except he has to be able to cut through an orchestra the size of a big Wagner orchestra so mm. imagine an evangelist crossed with a Tristan and you've got the kind of voice you need for the tenor. Well, it's just got me thinking, in Australia, if, if the orchestra was on stage, um, presumably the, uh, the singers weren't mic'd. No, the, no. Yeah, well. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. that's a projection job as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But in fact, you know, if we come back to Wozzeck, Berg wrote about Wozzeck that it was an opera in pianissimo with loud outbursts. And it's true. So it's interesting what we were just doing now, how much of that was actually just really soft and allowing the singers, would allow the singers to do this parlando, this sort of almost spoken singing, mm. and would come straight through in the acoustic. And then that big thing that we played, we played a bit of the interlude that's the like the penultimate scene. That is, of course, very big, very lush, very expressionistic, but nobody's trying to sing against that. That's just orchestra. No, I think about love what we did. There was so much solo string playing going on. There's a extended cello solo and a lot yeah. of extended viola and, yeah. and big violin solo and yeah, all of yeah. that yeah I mean you're dealing with big voices in Wozzeck I mean the the usually the guy singing Wozzeck would be the same fellow who probably sings Flying Dutchman or Voltan um, and the person singing the doctor would probably be the same kind of singer who sings Hagen in Goethe Demerol mm. or or Pogner or King Mark big singers so big voices yeah, yeah. Um, the theme of this week in our workshops has been theme and, and variations and kind of every day we've had a different variation on the theme of theme and variation. Yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah. Today, today's was a passacaglia. Yeah. Which um, is a different kind of theme of variation. Yes, so I was just going to uh, ask you to talk about a little bit about passacaglia and where... Passacaglia. 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 Um, where does that originate from? Okay, well, it's one of the earliest forms of theme variation. Um, it's not quite the same as what they call... There's some kind of baseline that they call... 
Oh, help. Not a figured base, that's, that's just you. Alberti base. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's basically a passacaglia. There is a single melody which is in fact not altered as you go through the set of variations. Um, as in it's not put into the minor key, it's not mm-hmm. turned on its head or anything like that. But the passacaglia here moves through the orchestra through different instruments and it starts just in the cello line as the tone row and so that so he there doubles it for us just to just to make it a bit more obvious he puts the tone row is also the passacaglia theme the first time we hear it it's in the cellos but it's completely disguised because they're playing this basically impossible rhythm Um, but that's stating the 12 notes of the tone row and then there's another uh, movement where it goes into the xylophone for example so it's about three octaves higher than it was on its first statement. It's very well disguised and you can do a thorough analysis of the whole theme of variations and find the passacaglia each time. I'm not sure it's worth the trouble. But you'd never be able to figure that out just from listening to it like for the first no. time, would you? No. no. Um, and in this, in Berg's case, it was, he used these very traditional forms as a means of imposing structure and order on this system of 12-tone composition. So um, now you're going to hear everything doubled in my presentation. But basically, <laughs> the first act of Wozzeck is in is symphonic form. The second act, no, wrong. The first act is a set of different forms. There's a suite, there's a theme of variations, there's a rondo, and so on. The second act is in expanded symphonic form. And the third act is in the earliest form which goes back to renaissance times which is a series of what they call inventions so inventions on a single note inventions on a rhythm inventions on a chord Um, and so he uses these kind of old structures for his very new musical language and he got criticized roundly for it at the time for not being new enough for not being new enough for for um as as the hardcore contemporaries put it Mm. resorting to historical musical forms do you reckon he was trying to say something through using those traditional musical forms even though the music itself may not sound traditional yes i think he was trying to um indicate that this was not an abrupt departure that this was actually a natural development of where music had brought us to to this point i mean what and also what he was trying to say was Wagner's done because what Wagner did which threw the musical world into absolute sort of anarchy was that he removed forms from the operas there in the later Wagner operas there are no duets there are no arias there are it's what we call through composed durchkomponiert and by imposing these structures compositional structures on each scene of his opera, Schoenberg uh, Berg says, um, we're moving away from Wagner. We're not going for the through composed. We're now going to put impose symphonic structure on the operatic stage. A development, if you like, a, a, a joining and at the same time diverging from what had been up to that point. Are you particularly concerned with uh, composers of today and the way that they kind of do similar things? Very much so. In fact, um, see, I studied, well, I studied in an extremely haphazard fashion, but I did study composition at one point. Mm-hmm. And for me, always a, a 
sort of the the line, if you like, of above which I find things interesting or below which it's not worth doing is could I have written it myself? <laughs> if I could have written it myself, then it's not interesting. <laughs> if, if it's better than that, then it's worth having a look at. Mm. Um, and this is where composers like, well, Australian composers like Brett Dean just stand out above the crowd because Brett works within structures. He expands the structures. Sometimes he explodes the structures or deconstructs the structures, but the, structure the structures, there. it's there. Yeah. Whereas we went through a phase in the 80s and 90s of people sort of doing these very sort of um, kind of Californian... <laughs> <laughs> through composed, filmic, yeah. non-structured works, yeah. with the results that they tended to then be applied to either film or to dance, which imposed a different kind of structure on them. Music for use. Music for use. They ended up intended, intended to be abstract, and yet as abstracts they didn't have sufficient substance, so they had to be applied then to be used. Uh, I, an audience requires some sort of structure in which to grab, grasp the architecture of an evening. I mean... Like that's imitation theory, isn't it, to, to an extent? Like there has to be something that follows on from the thing that came before to maintain some sort of interest or to, or to let the audience know sort of what's going on in a really basic way. There has to be a path. Yeah. Otherwise, um, otherwise you're going to lose 80% of your audience. Maybe that's your intention. Um, it can't be these days, surely. <clears throat> but yes, the reality is today that can't be the case. So the idea of using formal structures within a new auditory language, I think, is pretty interesting. And Baird did that, and a lot of contemporary composers are also doing that, reinvestigating structures like the fugue um, and reinterpreting sort of traditional classical forms. I was going to say, like, in a way, then this work, you know, it's harkening back to the old forms, is is quite an important portal in a way for modern audiences, because even though it's hundred years old, it, I mean, it's still extremely contemporary to to most uneducated ears, mm. or you know, not extremely educated ears. Like, <laughs> has it like it should feels like it should be taken off the shelf a little bit and, and used to that? Yeah, I tried. I try to put Second Viennese School into a lot of my programs. Mm particularly if they also contain something that's written in the last 30 years. Because, as you say, it's, it's an important portal. It's, it opens the door to how contemporary thought has developed. I mean, mm. the, the early part of the, of the 20th century, different countries' musical thought was heading off in lots and lots of different directions. Most of them went to a dead end. Serialism, which started with the 12 tone, is the one form that has sort of continued to evolve and develop because it applies a structural form to sound. I mean, Messiaen is a serialist in a particular kind of way. I mean, he uses his his objective might be um, his principle might be sort of Indian dance rhythms, for example, in Tarangalila, but he then uses them in a serial way. He explodes them, expands them, augments them, dimin diminishes them. Mm -hmm. He treats them. Sorry? Throws in a bird. Just Throws in a bird, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he, um, he treats them in a kind of a traditionally serialist fashion 
even though the auditory material is completely different. Mm. So the concept of serialism is absolutely crucial to the understanding of the development of where we've ended up today. To cool. Ign- yeah, to ignore it is kind of to ignore the progression, right? Mm. Yeah, and I think, I think if we want to, and it's one of my things is bringing audiences to contemporary music, mm. we have to give them something to hang on to. We have to give them something that they can link and th- so they can go from the unknown, from the known to the unknown mm. um, and not be afraid. Because most, most reticence has to do with fear of not being able to understand it. So you can, if you yeah. can give them some hints of how to get there, yeah. they're much more likely to understand it. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's probably as much as we've got time for. I think so, yeah. We should probably great. have some dinner. And, and we look forward to the uh, a quasi-performance tonight. Okay, yeah. <laughs> great. Thanks very much. Um, so today, we won't mention too much about the piece, but it was a, a piece written by various composers. Various uh, British composers, the British all-stars yes, um, of the 1950s. And each of them wrote a variation on this uh, uh, Renaissance English folk tune. Mm. We'll give you a little taste of that now, and uh, then we'll play Simone's uh, final talk with us for this week. Yes, it feels like a little bit like sort of the last hurrah because everybody's packing up for Christmas. Yeah, definitely. I just cleaned out my locker this morning. <laughs> How's that feel? Oh, yeah, good. I spent about an hour photocopying all of the music. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> all the music sort of piled up in there in the last two years. Um, so, Simone, tell us a little, about, a little bit about this last piece that we've, we're doing this week. Yeah, it's a set of variations written by a number of different composers based on a Renaissance tune. It was written for the coronation of Elizabeth II, and there's a variation by Walton, there's one by Benjamin Britten, one by Tippett, they're the three best-known composers, but there's also one by a guy called Arthur Oldham, who was an important choral director. Mm -hmm. There's one by a guy called Humphrey Searle, who wrote a lot of educational treatises and... um, a lot of satirical stuff. So, you know, it's, it's quite interesting because it's quite quirky. Do you get into the minds of each of those composers a little bit? Yeah, a little difficult. There's very little out there about some of these guys. Mm. Um, Britton, Walt and Tippett I'm familiar with, so that's fine. And Lennox Barkley is another one. As, a, as woodwind players, you would know the mm. name Lennox Barkley. The string players had never heard of him. Um, but he, he wrote a flute sonata, yeah, and he wrote some stuff for recorder and various bits and pieces. So woodwind players usually know that he exists, even if they don't know anything about him. When, when did you first come across this piece? Um, well, actually, I was aware of the existence of this piece from, it, from Aldborough, which is the Britain, home of the Britain Festival, Benjamin Britain Festival in England, and I conducted War Requiem there back in... 2003 and I was lucky enough to stay at what's called the Red House which is the house that used to be Benjamin Britten's Mm -hmm. and they put guests up there sometimes and there's an archive and all of that and that's pretty awesome yeah (laughs) um 
But, uh, and just from reading a lot about Benjamin Britten, I was aware that he had contributed to this piece and that it had been premiered at Albra. But I really didn't know anything more about it. And when we were looking at the subject theme and variations, I thought this might be interesting because it's a lot of different composers take from the 1950s on a piece of Renaissance music. Mm. So you're getting kind of a weird historical perspective, which from our contemporary point of view is already very outdated of a piece of English Renaissance music. And in fact, Tippett takes it one step further because in his variation, he quotes a Purcell opera in the body of the orchestra and puts the variation on the Renaissance tune just into a kind of an obligato on the violin. The two sound almost like they have very little to do with one another. It's a very weird piece of music, but kind of interesting. I, I, I guess I just I like weird. Yeah. <laughs> do, do, do any of these variations um, sit quite close to each other? Because I imagine these um, uh, arrangers wouldn't have had that much collaboration between each other when they were working on it. Like, have they had similar ideas? None whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and in fact, when it was first performed, there was a competition in Albra to see if anybody could actually guess who wrote yeah, which right. movement. <laughs> And uh, nobody got it right. Oh, wow. um, I reckon you could pick Britain, Benjamin Britten straight away and you could probably pick William Walton. Mm-hmm. With a push, you might get Lennox Barclay because it's quite derivative of Britain. Barclay mm-hmm. was a student of Britain's. Um, and I think then you'd be struggling to get the rest because it, it's slightly too obscure. Yeah. Um, but what was really interesting was that the pieces have very different characters. Like the 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 how the Humphrey Searle piece is really very sort of late romantic in style and very um, it requires almost a sort of Tristan esque kind of treatment to some of the lines. Whereas the Benjamin Britten piece is very sort of in the character of the way Britten treats folk songs. It's quite brilliant with a lot of pizzicato and the low strings and things, and it's, you know, it's quite bubbly. And the Walton is just hard but quite virtuoso and quite has a real impact, so that's the final movement. Yeah, it's really interesting. Since then, two more movements have been written, but it's got very complicated because they're published by somebody else, so you can't actually perform the whole lot together. It's very weird. This is a la The Planets. with um, Someone wrote Pluto, didn't they? Oh, that's like Planets. Yeah, Colin Matthews wrote oh. Pluto, which I've performed. All right. But Pluto has since been demoted. Pluto is no longer a planet. <laughs> no, no it's, it's back, isn't it? And it's, it's recently it? been reappointed. That's right, so that's right. I... I've started, the last few years I haven't done Pluto, so I might have to start doing Pluto again. It's a very clever um, treatment by Colin Matthews. Colin Matthews was also a Britain student and is one of the Britain scholars um, and um, was instrumental in completing some of the things that were unfinished by Britain at the time of his death, like the duet concerto for violin and viola. But... um, this piece by Colin Matthews, Pluto, is quite clever because he takes the ladies' chorus, which only comes into the last movement of Holst's Planets. He takes that and continues that through Pluto and uses some of the elements of Neptune, yeah. but kind of refracted, if you like. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. get a much more sense of, of distance yeah. and strangeness. Just coming back to what's been happening in the building this week. Yeah. Um, We've had some of our students come up and conduct uh, the rest of the students. Yeah. How's that gone? Look, it's gone really well. I think it's it's generated not only for those who've actually stepped up and done some conducting, for whom it's been 
quite a new experience. Yes. Um, it's also generated a lot of discussion as to what it is about the conductor's gesture that a musician responds to. So looking at it from both sides. Yeah, because we've had the forum quite open this week uh, where people have been able to ask questions and sort of just see what kind of, well, what kind of feedback there is about whoever's up at the podium. Yeah, I've really enjoyed that aspect of this week, actually, because yeah. we've we've taken away the pressure of having to get something ready for a public performance. Yeah. So it meant each day we've just worked on a specific project and there's been plenty of time open for discussion, for feedback, and then to get some students up to do some conducting. It's very hard. I was thinking about it this morning because ideally when you're conducting, you shouldn't really be thinking about yourself and what do the people in front of me think about me and so on. That's much easier in front of an orchestra of strangers than it is amongst uh, standing in front of a group of people that you've been working and studying with for you for a couple of years. Yeah. I, I was thinking about yesterday, in fact, sort of getting up there. Um, you know, I, I sort of have some yeah, sort of you have relationship go, yeah. with every single yeah. person in that orchestra. You know, and, and that is, is hard to stuff to the back burner while you're trying to focus on the piece. Absolutely, and so and also because you're standing up there to be examined, to be looked at, to be you know dissected, if you like, to be told what to do. It is about what you're doing and it is about who you are. And, and so it's quite different to the actual job of conducting, which is about making the music and, and getting a piece ready, mm. teaching it to this group of musicians. So it's kind of a, a false situation, if you like. But how else are you going to learn? So it, it's been really interesting. And it's been very interesting to see people with, you know, nobody's really got much experience, but... People have different levels of natural ability of communication, natural physicality through a beat, and then how they approach kind of the intellectual side of it. Yeah. So, you know, lots of different people at lots of different levels. And interesting, I'll be very curious to see in six months' time when I'm back again who's continuing with this idea and, yeah. and where it goes from here. Yeah. Fingers crossed for Will, I think. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I think it's been, at the very least, it's been an enlightening and sort of just a great experience for, for all of us just to have you in the building in a different context and, and not, not preparing for a real, you know, our gala concert. And here's the thing, you've been doing a lot of, in a way, public lecturing this week, especially yeah. when, the, when, the, um, when the audience, the animators come in. Do you, do you see your role from day to day as, as an educator like at, when you're up there on the podium? Uh, to a certain extent, I think that's part of... Um, I prefer not to. I mean, I, I can talk non-stop. But I can talk on for hours about what I do because I, I love what I do. I'm passionate about it, and I, I hope I'm quite knowledgeable about it. But um, it, ideally, I want to be making the music. However, the reality is these days, you've got to communicate about what you do. You've got to communicate why it's important. You've got to, if you're choosing to do challenging repertoire, you've got to help people find a way into it as well. So I find I probably do more communicating, more introductions to things and so on than I used to do. Yeah. Um, and that's fine, as long as the end purpose is about getting closer to the music. Mm. Well, we're just about out of time. Already? Yeah. Wow. There it is. <laughs> okay. Well, I can just want to say it's been a really interesting week for me too. It's been a chance to be actually, I feel, to you know, be really relaxed and quite open and quite honest with the students. It's not been about this is what we're going to do and this is getting ready for Friday. It's been about an exchange of ideas, which mm. I felt has been really constructive. So... I hope we continue this in some form or other in the future. I certainly hope uh, so. Yeah, I really hope so. I think it's been a benefit of 
everyone at Adam for this week to have happened. Yeah. Fantastic. Great. Thanks. Simone, thank so you much. so much for your time. Thanks a lot. And that, I think, brings us to the end of the this. End. The, 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 the end the of the end. end. This, this is it um, for the Upo Download for 2016. Thank um, you all so much for listening. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a real uh, pleasure putting all this stuff together for you and sharing um, the stories of the people who work here and study here and teach here. And, and visit here. And ex- it's, exactly. it's, it's been... And who have also studied here as well. We had some alumna, hmm. alumnus, alumni. Alumni. <laughs> alumni. <laughs> I and, anyway, <laughs> if you would like to know more about what's happening at Anam in 2017, I believe uh, all of the major concerts and the big brochure is up on the website for you to peruse. It's very, very colourful and features the lovely faces of some of our most... Uh, Handsomest. <laughs> <laughs> um, students from for, uh, for next year. Uh, so please check that out. There are so many cool concerts going on and there's uh, quite a bit of touring, a little more than last year. Mm. Um, and yeah, some really, really amazing repertoire that's going to be covered. Have you got a pick? What's, what's your favourite thing that's happening? I mean, um, neither of us are going to be here next year studying, but like from afar, what's going to be your favourite Well, it thing? sounds like that Frank Zappa. Yeah, I was just about to say. Really cool. yeah, yeah. Um, but they're also doing a Turangalila Symphony, Massillon. Massillon. Um, which is just going to be amazing. And that's in conjunction with the Australian World Orchestra, I believe. Yes, yeah, side by side. Yeah. Um, As is, I, I believe, the Zappa thing. Aren't there some of Ensemble Modern coming out? Yeah, for that's that? right. Yeah. That's Ensemble Modern. And they recorded that album, Yellow yeah. Shark, with, with Frank Zappa. Yeah, that's right. So that's going and, to be an amazing uh, concert. There's also a side by side project with uh, Tasmania Symphony Orchestra at some point, is there? I believe so. Yep. Um, but all the details are on the website. Yes, yeah, so please check that out. Uh, we really, really appreciate your support. Um, and thank you again for a great year. Yeah, that probably wraps it up. I've been Luke Carbon. I've been Luke Carbon, you idiot. You've been Kenny Keppel. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been the Up or Down Low. We'll see you next time. See ya. Yeah.